Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. Over the last few months, the economy has been a constant, if most of the time, gloomy story. So on Budget Day, we are delighted to be joined by Giles Wilkes. How are you doing, Giles? Welcome. I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm, I'm not in a state of worry or concern, so I, I'm feeling fine. That's very good. It's always good to be a little bit cheery when talking about the economy, particularly at the moment. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself uh, to listeners that perhaps haven't come across your work? Okay, I'm not sure how far back to go, but I'll say I'm somebody who's been in public policy for around 15 years. I was an intern at a think tank, then uh, a researcher at one. And when the coalition formed, Liberal Democrats wanted an advisor for Vince Cable, and I got the job. Four years in that, then a couple of years at Financial Times, then two and a half years of being a special advisor in Theresa May's Downing Street, still as a Liberal Democrat, very strange creature. And since then, I left the same day as she did, I have been um, doing two jobs, working as a senior fellow at the Institute for Government, writing about policy, and also an excellent consultancy called Flint Global, trying to advise people on how government and business and all that works. So keeping my eyes on politics the whole time. Yeah, and interesting that you worked for uh, Vince Cable and for Theresa May, who um, are yeah. known for having very similar economic views, I don't think. Not really, although they would share a lot of um, a lot of the same viewpoint about the economy not working and industrial intervention being the right thing. I don't think they had ever gotten on particularly well with each other, and they certainly did, fell out about things like immigration. But um, they, you find people further apart than those two. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, of course, we're joined by Martin Rogers, my co-podcaster. How are you doing, Martin? Hello, Steve. Hello, Charles. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi, yeah. So what we're hoping to do today is have a fairly broad conversation about the kind of economic uh, situation we're in and uh, some of the discourse about it. But of course, it's budget day. So it would be remiss not to start without getting your reaction to what was in the red box. OK, well, look, the big picture, you know, when you're talking macro, all the big numbers like uh, the debt, the deficit, how much it's going to grow, inflation, all that big stuff was broadly less changed from the last time he stood up at the dispatch box in November than we've had for a long time. If you think about it, since really 2019, we've had either the Brexit wars or COVID, the economy absolutely cratering, then springing out like on a trampoline, then the recovery slowing, then the Ukraine crisis. Every time there's been a big shift in the macro story. And this time, actually, it's been roughly the same. Energy prices a bit lower. So the recession that he feared... Uh, isn't likely to turn up or it might be a very mild one so that's the macro picture in the meantime micro he's he's in a he's in a bit of a bind he's got a problem with trying to get growth going again and he also has a problem that he needs to demonstrate to conservative backbenchers who kind of love the crazed trust approach to politics uh, who kind of wanted that kind of big bang approach to growth policy he had to demonstrate that he's got his own story going as well. So he had a bunch of measures to try to get growth going. It's difficult. He didn't have much in the way of firepower to throw at them. But there's a few interesting things in there, like extra tax breaks for investment, ways to get more people into the workforce, the usual kind of sciencey announcements. And I think he did all right. I think well enough that they're going to hold on for a few more months, the Tory party, and see whether the country starts coming around to their more sensible approach to governing. So I think that um, Keir Starmer called it managed decline or something similar. Mm. I yeah. think uh, Jeremy Hunt said the plan is working. Um, are both <laughs> those things true? Well, yeah. 
The managed decline, I think Starmer's pointing out, is the long decline we seem to have suffered since 2010 in terms of certain things. It feels like public services are worse, waiting lists are longer. Uh, we feel like things are falling to pieces a little bit in the public realm. Certain areas like local government have had an absolutely shocking time. So there's that long decline. And there's also the sense that our growth rates are nothing like what we expect them to be. And you can go over all the Office for Budget Responsibility reports and see that decline. So the past 13 years has been declined. The chance though, through some selective use of statistics shows things going better. You know, you can always pick things that are good, like inflation is better than it was a few months ago. Unemployment's a lot lower than it might be. We're doing better than this or that European country. So he's telling the optimistic story you have to as a chancellor. And also pointing out certain strengths Britain has got and hasn't lost. So it depends on whether you're facing forward or backwards and whether you think the conservative prescription to make things better is the right one. I think Starmer's closer to the truth than Hunt. Hunt's got to prove it, basically. If he says we're a great country that's going to spring our way out, well, the last few years has disproven that kind of um, positive sentiment and it's all on him to show that it can get better. Thanks for that. So I'd like to start with asking... Is it accurate to say that Britain is in a uniquely bad position? There's been a bit of a sort of a narrative around that, but how is Britain doing both in and of itself, but also in international comparison? I mean, that's a really interesting question because in some ways, a lot of the same things has hit everybody. Everybody got hit by COVID. Everybody's been hit by the energy price rises that followed Putin's invasion. In fact, the whole supply chain shock, supply chains tightening, labour shortages stuff, that's hit most countries in different ways. But, you know, broadly speaking, roughly the same way. Um, but, I mean, where is the UK unique? The UK is unique in that it's just cut itself off from its biggest trading partner and all of the disruption that's come from that, which nearly every economist would put at a, you know, a few percentage points of GDP, which is quite a lot. And it does also feel that the public realm here, I mean, I haven't been to a lot of other countries, but the public realm here seems to be in particular difficulty. People, We don't know what to do about the NHS. You don't hear about the same kind of level of distress in health services in other countries. I mean, I, I can only really go off anecdotes, but when I got an injury on a skiing holiday a few weeks ago, it was fine being looked after in mm -hmm. Austria. And you got the sense in the UK, I would have been sitting waiting for eight hours with my dislocated shoulder. Things like that feel that they've gone slightly further wrong with the UK. As for like our growth potential, I think, I think all countries face some of the really big problems like climate change needs to be dealt with, demography, everybody aging. These are all really big joint challenges, but the UK has been unique and it can't really make up its mind how it's going to solve this. It keeps changing its model or its approach and doing things like Brexit and then changing the entire character of the leadership. You go from someone really sort of sensible and solid like Theresa May to someone flighty and mad like Boris Johnson and Truss and now, now Sunak, who's kind of, more of a thatch right we don't seem to settle on a single thing industrial strategy keeps coming in and going out this will turn into a, a rant soon but we don't have a settled confident way of going after big issues we seem to have lost our confidence so i think some of it is really uniquely ours and is waiting almost for a fresh start i just sort of pick up on something there before we go on to something else do you think we've almost ended up focusing on the sort of tactics rather than strategy that there is something perhaps in the Keir Starmer 
criticism of in his phrase sticking plaster politics there's a lot of sort of short-term fix but just saving up trouble for the future there's a lot of that. I mean, you know, every politician who goes in there and is in Downing Street will say that we're going to now set a really long term plan. They don't think they're going to be politically very mortal. I mean, for example, Theresa May uh, helped promote these missions under these great big grand challenges, looking at ageing and the green economy and things. And we thought these were going to guide policy for many years and then things change and they don't. So people try to be long term, but a lot of the rhythms in government are very tactical. I mean, number one right day to be saying this everything focuses around the treasury and the budget i mean getting that budget right having a big moment that seems to show that the chancellor's in charge and he's got lots of goodies for everybody is so important for the political system that it can dominate everything else it's very hard to have a five or ten year strategy for anything when lots of six month or 12 month budgetary periods are constantly getting in the way so yeah i do think we're quite tactical it feels like we're really focused on the press sometimes on the inside, it can sometimes feel like the communications special advisors are in the driving seat and everyone else is having to be the dog that's wagged by that tail. Um, so I think, yeah, we do. I think there's something to it. Although, how do you prove a statement like that? I mean, I haven't been to another political system, but it does feel that way on the inside. All right. Well, in that case, I've maybe slightly answered my own question, but there's something that's um, a question that's been sort of going around that I'd really like your take on the answer to which is why are taxes so high and yet as you touched on with the nhs public services seem or indeed are so bad well look let me clarify first of all your the premise of your question which is taxes as a share of gdp have gone to a relatively high level they were around i don't know 35, 36% of GDP, now they're 38. So, and that's a higher level than we've had for a long time. Um, now, some of this is about the way you measure these things, tax as a share of GDP. If your GDP shit, um, falls, that tax burden will rise almost automatically sometimes. It, the taxes don't fall necessarily in the same way. And certainly the public spending needs don't fall. If you just mess up your economy, you don't find that the old people need less care or the kids need, need less education. So having a failing economy will sometimes make that ratio go up on its own. And so then there's no puzzle really to solve. Another reason is that there's something called Wagner's law, which is the demand for like public services goes up inexorably year after year, faster than the size of the economy. So the more old people you have, the more you need to spend on health is a good example. I think an 80 year old costs the NHS typically eight times as much as a 30 year old. But also public services on their own have a higher in level of inflation than most of the economy because their services, services aren't traded, they don't have the same productivity gains. So um, inevitably the state gets more expensive as time passes unless you find extraordinary efficiencies or you get lots of good luck in the, the economy. So some of it is just structural and that's what happens. What's happened in the case of the UK though is specifically, I think the failure on growth has been has taken us by surprise. A few years ago, we were expecting much faster growing economy. And also we have been mismanaging the public services to a certain degree. Like we've maybe, we didn't invest in NHS capital, for example. So the computer systems aren't as good as they could be. We have, um, we have not allowed local authorities to raise money themselves and, and deal with some of their local challenges better. I, so, but otherwise I would also, I would go back to that thing about our taxes really high. You know what? I mean, they're not terrible as 
in terms of like the rates of tax, when I was a kid, the high income tax, the standard rate of income tax was somewhere in the 30s, I'm like 20% now, and the upper rate was something like 80. The corporation tax was much, much higher. I mean, a lot of taxes were quite high in terms of the rate that they took away from you. Um, and, you know, we took a lot of people out of the tax during, during the, the coalition. I don't think it's necessarily the case that the tax burden is therefore all that dreadful. It's just not been very well used, in my opinion. So what then should we learn from some of the recent economic and sort of economic policies? So specifically, trussonomics, for want of a better phrase, the uh, the Liz Truss experiment with quasi-parting. What should we learn from why it happened, what happened, the results of it? And what lessons should we sort of avoid learning from it? So what yeah. should we and should we not learn from it? Yeah, I mean that's a, I mean that's a really interesting one. I mean, here's here's the most sympathetic to Liz Truss and Quasi Quateng statement I can possibly make, which is that if they said, look, our prescription wasn't really tried, they'd have half a point. I mean, it hardly was, was it? I mean, within a month, all, all those measures were being unwound. So really, what we're asking about is what should we learn about them being so badly introduced that they didn't even get into the system? These lower tax rates and other sorts of plans. And so the, one of the really high level principles here is it's no good having great political principles if your timing and judgment is awful. There are times when it might have been possible or affordable to introduce a radical swinging tax cutting budget that left all sorts of horrible challenges for public spending. I wouldn't have liked it, but it would have survived the guilt markets examination. But their timing was stupendously awful and was combined with every other kind of error, like making crass political judgments, like taking away that top rate of tax, like firing the permanent secretary of the treasury, like not asking the office for budget responsibility to do their maths, like having a totally open wound of an energy price support um, plan. They did literally everything wrong at the wrong time. And as a result, they were just carted out. In many worlds, the trustonomics experiment might have actually been carried out beyond stage one, and we'd instead be having a conversation now about: Is it the right thing? Our government are is the economy gonna grow higher than it, it was before? Are public services able to cope with these lower amounts of money? You know, we'll be asking about whether trustonomics can be carried all the way through, and we'll never know now because it's been given the worst possible reputation by it's visible and spectacular collapse last autumn and that's a defensive trustonomics it wasn't really tried so around about 2010 i was in the category of person who i think begrudgingly accepted at the time that we probably had to do some version of austerity yeah and over the years so gosh that's 13 almost years ago now that started um over the years my view changed from oh it should stop a bit sooner to gosh, wasn't it a bad idea in the first place? And that was a steady flow of sort of me moving, I guess, to the left on that issue. But then should what happened to trust and the bond markets, should that give me or people with that kind of view pause? The people who say that trust proves that anti-Austerians were always wrong are um, uh, ignoring market conditions in just the same way that trust did. You know, back in 2011, 12, 13, the long interest rate on the government bond was falling from four to three to two to one and a half, if I remember rightly. 
it was sending all the signals that we don't have enough aggregate demand in the economy, that you need more spending, that the government can afford to borrow more, that it doesn't matter if the debt repayment schedule goes out a bit. In fact, it did passively because growth was lower, revenues were lower. And so we kind of introduced longer, a longer and gentler fiscal deficit schedule there, not in a way that stimulated the economy, but passively. So trust doesn't show that taking a gentler approach then would have been an utter disaster the I, the bond markets were last autumn facing you know r- rates were rising everywhere nobody had to lend to the uk um if the uk if the uk had gone for a slower fiscal consolidation in 2012 or 13 or whenever you might have been thinking about it um it would have been um, you know, if its rates had gone up to 3%, a lot of people would have said, great, 3%. I can only get like 1% lending to the Germans, or one and a half lending to the Americans. Three for the UK is great, but everyone's rates were rising last year. So I think you've got to look at specific circumstances. It would have still been a tough political call because the doing austerity more slowly, you'd probably have had to have done it for many, many more years and people were going to get tired of it. So it's part of the coalition's judgment was let's just get this out of the way and done. But um, I don't think trust proves anti-austerians wrong. Before we get on to the kind of legacy of austerity, can I ask your opinion on the the kind of more political side, which is why did essentially sort of market fundamentalists, the, you know, trust and quarting and, you know, the telling the Tory party kind of what they wanted to hear. Why did these people who are so pro-free market so badly misunderstand the free market i think there's a um it's a great gotcha that they deserve to confront i think people have different views about financial markets and um, normal you know supermarkets normal trading markets in goods and, uh, and products and normal company behavior financial markets even real market fundamentalists think that they can overreact and overshoot in all sorts of ways so you can have a little theory that bond markets are being fussy like Nigel Lawson for example who was a very free market chancellor in the 80s used to complain about the teenage scribblers in the city and you know all these youngsters just shouting and getting overexcited about market movement so there must be some of that in it um I think also um but I do think otherwise you've got a fairly strong point in opposition the same people would be using the markets as a weapon to beat the government up with they'd be saying you can't borrow because look what happens to the guilt rate so they've been hoist by their own petard undoubtedly yeah is it sorry i just think this is a really sort of interesting one to to explore that not necessarily just this the sort of the gotcha thing and the you know they say one thing government won't think another in opposition but like is it that they don't have exposure to to working in sort of private sector, private finance? Uh, is it that they spend too long around sort of think tankers who, you know, agree with them or, you know, want to push them even more and more? Is it that they got too caught up in telling the party what they wanted to hear? Like, what was the sort of the, the basis of the, the the lack of understanding? And was it just kind of echo chamber? You know, really want to sort okay. of get into to, if, to that. I mean, if we're talking on. about the specific market that caught them out, the government bond market, if we're talking about that, what did they not understand about that which meant they got it wrong? Well, one, the, to excuse them, 
the government bond market's behaviour last autumn surprised a lot of people because of these uh, these trading strategies called liability-driven insurance that would have meant lots of companies, pension funds, who had got into that strategy are forced to sell out of it in a hectic way when market movements went against them. Nobody really knew about that. And it seemed like even the Bank of England had to really up its game to get ahead of that. So part of it was we had no idea there were these kind of accelerators in the financial markets. They might have been able to speak to the right people. And it's possible if they'd been wiser, greyer heads, they might have had more connections with the, you know, the best guy for speaking to the world of finance in the Treasury, apparently the former permanent secretary, Tom Scholar, um, was fired on day one. So they lost that particular contact. I think a lot of conservatives, though, they say, I'm, I'm a big believer in the free market. And they mean things like, let's cut government spending and give away taxes and then just see how the economy works. It doesn't mean they've got a particular view about whether Hayek is right or Friedman had a point here. What they mean is, you know, let's just have less government and more of whatever the rest is. It doesn't mean they've got a detailed understanding of how a guilt market behaves to a fiscal event. And so there wasn't any particular theory they had disproven. They were sitting there as dumbstruck by it as anyone else. One mistake it's easy to make is actually to overestimate the degree of theory um, in any kind of politician. Very few of them have a kind of fully worked out theory of how the world works. They've been spending too long being a politician to be having one. And so the, there's no there there sometimes. Uh, brilliant. Thank you. All right. So let's go on to the legacy of austerity. Right. What is it and how is it affecting us at the moment and all of the that we've talked about in this section? The legacy of austerity. Uh, what is it, you say? Well, look... Um, Obviously, all other things being equal, if you're trying to maintain great public services, it's better to have more money than less. I think that's a very bland and obvious statement. And the people who say austerity should never happen, in other words, the spending in year two should always be higher than year one, no questions asked, are naive. And, you know, sometimes governments need to find savings. So it shouldn't be the case that people assume that it's always awful and always wrong, that there's less money next year than that this year. Sometimes it just happens. Um, apart from the most sort of extreme, and I'd say naive Keynesians, they don't agree with that. But, you know, so what is the legacy of the particular austerity that was pushed through from 2010 onwards? Well, at the beginning, the complacent assumption was things haven't really been badly damaged. The people still love the NHS. We're still managing to introduce good reforms to schooling. You know, what's gone to pieces? There was a lot of crying wolf from the other side. We've called the bluff. I would say what always made me concerned was that uh, cuts to public spending have impacts that show up over time. You don't see them in instantly, and you need to do really careful analysis to make sure that you're not cutting too hard in year one, getting the political reward for the smaller state in year three, and then it's year five to 10 where you really see the problems. Now, I'm not enough of an expert in every single spending line to know exactly how that might have come across, but I personally think we the public services are weaker than they could would have been if we had chosen a gentler way of doing it, either more slowly or with more tax rises and fewer public spending cuts. Now, that's a political call. And a lot of people would say, well, it's easy to say that if you're feeling comfortable yourself, but people who pay tax and run out of income would rather have a tax cut and not worry so much about the state of the NHS. It's a classic political call. But I would say... The public realm is weaker than it could have been. Some areas have been cut 
monstrously hard, like local authority budget, social care is weaker than it might have been. And I think um, a really honest approach to doing it correctly would have been, first of all, to look objectively at what the needs of the public realm are, what's going to be happening to health, what's going to change with our demographics, what, and try to budget for that and then try to raise the resources for it. Instead, I think we raised resources as much as we thought we could politically, borrowed as much as we thought was sensible and then saw what was left over. And it probably, in my view, wasn't enough. And we had, a, as a result, less resilience in the public realm than we might have liked, less investment in things that might be quite good for growth. Yeah, so I think we did it a bit too hard. But I mean, it might we might have needed the first two or three years of it, but I thought the attempt to keep it going at the same harsh pace from 2013 onwards was a mistake. So you talked earlier about aggregate demand in the economy. What impact did austerity have on that? And how much has the sort of um, the essentially flatlining growth, the lack of productivity growth, can that be put down to um, to austerity? Is that sort of related, separate? What's okay. your take on that? This is a great and fundamental question. You won't always get an agreement that, so let's not pretend that I'm here to give you the uncontroversial consensus on this. Um, there's, several, there's a range of views. One range says cutting government spending when you're in a recessionary situation with excess resources obviously damages the economy. Another side will say, no, monetary policy can always bear the slack. Monetary policy ultimately determines the rate of demand growth in the economy, even when interest rates are really, really low. Other people say... In, you know, no, you can't. Interest rates being really low it becomes ineffective. I don't think the people who say it's entirely ineffective are right, and I think you can see from examples like Japan in 2012 that you can get aggregate demand don't going with monetary policy in the right target. Anyway, that's a really big theological macroeconomic argument that I can't really get into. I think the evidence is that aggregate demand growth was slower from 2010 onwards. Um, it also the hits that slowed it down from 2010 onwards were multiple. There was a euro crisis. There was an overhang of bank debt. So the banks were not lending very much and people didn't want to invest because they just had the shock of their lives in the financial crisis. There was a euro crisis. There were lots of things that caused the economy to slow down. So I'm not I'm, I'm, I'm not very convinced that aggregate demand growth would have been massively higher if there'd been more public spending, i.e. less austerity. We'll never know. But all economies seem to suffer this sort of slower aggregate demand growth a bit after 2010. So now the other question is also, did it cause a long term damage to our economic potential? There's several mechanisms by which it might have, like keeping unemployment higher for longer and people losing their skills. As it happened, our unemployment fell pretty fast. So that wouldn't have been a very long standing effect. Another one is that productivity isn't pursued when the economy isn't growing hot. It's when the economy is growing hot that you take out all those new techniques and really try and um, you really try and sort of test the limits of your company and become more productive. That's, um, I mean, I think there was more of a case for that during a lot of the the sort of 2010s. It looked like people were um, not investing very much. They could have invested more and productivity could have risen a little faster. But it's again, really, really hard to prove. I'd say right now we're in a situation where the economy is running hot. It's much harder to get labour out. It's much harder to hire anyone. Wages are growing quite hard. So aggregate demand isn't really the problem right now. But um, 
As for the whole of austerity, boy, it's a big question to try and summarise. So I'll leave my answer with that. Okay, thanks. And I will just finish my section by uh, returning to, I suppose, where all of the austerity began and that famous note. Well, is there any money left now? It's an artifice whether you've got money or not. You know, I mean, government, I mean, as has been tiresomely pointed out by modern monetary theorists for a while, governments sort of produce money. Everyone's always known that. It's just what other constraints are you going to bump up against? Could we increase public spending in this country? Yes. What would happen is you'd be borrowing more and it would put pressure on inflation ultimately. Um, and so interest rates would probably be higher and that would be a political choice. So money doesn't necessarily run out. But, you know, you know, when that note was written, I think the deficit was about 140 billion on a much smaller economy than we've got right now. Um, revenues had recently just vanished from a lot of the economy. And um, and so and whatever budget you needed to hit was going to be smaller than the one you currently were operating on. I mean, so I think it's possible for budgets to be burst and the money in effect to run out now some people get furious with that they think that they've got a really clever theory that nobody else has thought of that shows that you can always spend more i just don't think it's practical politics so i want to move us on particularly talk about economic growth but first i want to uh, read a tweet to you that i really enjoyed today uh, it says britain crushing it avoiding a technical recession eat that up doomsayers um i wonder if you might recognize that one yeah, that might have been my first one as um, as the chancellor got up to speak. I find that my aid memoir, as I'm listening to the budget, is to just have a conversation with it on Twitter as I go through. So that was my first one, which is a sarcasm that it's seen as such a fine achievement to have avoided a recession. You know, here we are, not long after the COVID recession, we're saying, yay, we haven't got another one. So yeah, that was what I was trying to get across there. Yeah, I think the pub quiz question of the day could well be how do you how does your economy shrink but while avoiding a recession? I think it's the it's, it's two quarters in a row, isn't it, that you need for technical? Yeah, that's that's it. And um, I don't know whether yeah, because it depends on how you measure the economy, whether it's the middle of one year to the middle of another year or something. Um, if a recession is you can draw a down line at any point at all, then we're probably going to hit one. But if it's not sustained, the trouble is as well, it won't be much normal pe people. This is, is a recession that's hitting people through their living standards. And there's a living standards recession happening, regardless of what's happening to GDP. So I think he's slightly unwise to go on about that achievement because a lot of other people out there won't be shouting, yay, we avoided it. Yeah. Now, that sounds cruel. But the, the reason I want to pick up on that was the, the doomsayers phrase. And I was following a debate a few months ago of, of boomsters versus doomsters, which seemed to be all over the place. And, and this seemed to be the argument about... Should we be pessimistic or optimistic about the government's ability to create, you know, significantly more economic growth? So I wanted to get your take on that conversation. Okay. Well, I mean, for me, I mean, I wrote a slightly irritable blog about a year and a half ago. So you can't just unleash growth. And what I meant was actually the criticism, all the language around budgets and things where the guy sits there and we've got a forecast that we're going to grow at one and a half percent or something rather mediocre like that. And you go, yeah, but I'm going to do these things. I'm going to introduce this tax break and announce this piece of spending on this piece of science. And as a result, we're going to rocket boost and unleash it. And I thought these people don't appreciate just the sheer scale of what we need to do to get growth going and how massive the installed 
inertia is of the whole system that there is okay so you announce a bit more investment well fine but the capital investment in the economy already is four and a half trillion so your extra 10 billion isn't going to move the dial or you announce some little skills program yeah but we've got 32 million people in work already I mean, these are all great things. It's just you're, you're adding tiny bits of sand onto a model. And the other thing that slightly annoyed me is having worked in there with lots of really diligent civil servants all the time, everyone's always trying to get growth going. Every treasury analysis will be to try and cut out the things that are bad for growth and do the things that are good for growth. There's going to be all this pushing going on. And that forecast that we're going to grow at only one and a half percent includes a lot of those measures working. So you've got to do all the things that are going to work and then do something even more. So... Um, I wasn't saying, oh, we can't grow again because we're all sort of old and rubbish and everything's so difficult. I was, I was just saying it's, it takes thousands of small actions, not just your one small pamphlet or your one newspaper article with your one op-ed with your one big idea, which is normally build more houses. You've got to do the maths on all of these things. And you find that they all, you have to do an awful lot of things to get a big change in that, that thing. So it's not necessarily gloomy. And it's not necessarily optimistic. It's just trying to get a proper sense of the scale. And the scale is so seldom really appreciated by people. So that was my original take. And then later when, I think, I can't even remember when the, that actual language was coming in, it started becoming a big debate because I suppose people started noticing that that lower growth assumption that was in the OBR and elsewhere was, was sort of, a dominant assumption that then characterized everything else that happened in politics. If you don't have growth, you don't have as much money, you can't do as many things. And um, thinking, well, can we not question this? And um, and so I suppose it started becoming a political dividing line, but I've always thought it's a slightly silly, it's a slightly silly argument. Um, and it, it could be treated a little bit more soberly. Instead it's treated as a vibe, like, you know, are you, are you a, a glass half full or a glass, half empty person yeah uh, yes in, indeed so if, it, if it's hard to move the dial on growth i think is what you're you're saying yeah. um so what what things work because the other debate you have is is people saying well we just build more houses it'll unleash growth we yeah. cut taxes it'll unleash growth r&d it, it, do we have any sense of what the things we could really do that okay it's not going to grow the economy by three percent more but might make a significant difference Okay, I mean, what I always say to those people, I've got nothing against most of those ideas. I just always want to say, show me your workings. So, for example, in the housing thing, construction is 6% of GDP, and maybe half of that is private sector housing. So you can work out how much higher the level of GDP would be if there was more private sector housing, purely from that. So, you know, it's just about show me your workings kind of point there. Or you need another mechanism that building more houses and all the clever people will all go to the right cities and suddenly all these cities will be like San Francisco. You know, you need to have a theory and then give me the numbers on the theory. Because this isn't common, it's not particle physics, it's just like basic economics. Um, what sort of things can really absolutely fundamentally massively work? Well, what have worked through history? Well, adopting capitalism, that's great. If you it can be a country that goes from not being capitalist, having a planned economy that is sort of tyrannized by some kind of emperor to one that is actually working on market principles and allowing people to pursue individual project products and, and sell things in the market and so forth. Like Deng Xiaoping, the greatest achiever of growth of all time is Deng Xiaoping, what he did for China at the beginning of uh, the 80s. That's, that's your winner. Relatedly, you know, adopting systems which respect the rule of law. That's what we did in 1689 or something with the Glorious Revolution and constraining the power of the king. 
I mean, certain massive technologies can raise the level of growth, like the discovery of electricity, the internal combustion engine, the computer, steam power, machines, assembly lines, all this sort of thing. All of these things can contribute towards the level of growth going up from, you know, 0.1% a year back before the Industrial Revolution to half a percent a year, which when you compound is fantastic. You know, do just do something as straightforward as invent thousands of great machines that make the Industrial Revolution work. So a really massive new breakthrough technology potentially could. I think AI might be a bit overhyped in that regard, but it could certainly help. Um, so capital investment can make a difference. If a country is trying to catch up at the frontier, you can turn around to its people and say, you're going to have less good things, like fun things, like consumption. You're going to, that's going to go into capital instead. Build up the capital stock of your economy and target export markets. And if those people are diligent and skilled, then they'll grow faster because they can grow to the technological frontier with some of that extra capital investment. Being open, being open to others' ideas, markets, those are great ideas. So the more closed you are, the more you just try to trade with yourself, the less efficient you're going to be as an economy. All of those are sort of great ideas and iterations that will matter all the time. So whenever you hear a minister saying, we're going to open this market and get a trade deal and that will really boost growth. Sorry, my friend talking about the budget there. Um, that those things all work but you know you do the maths on them they've done the maths on some of these deals like the australian trade deal and um and it's and they say oh yeah that's fine you know you get all these things through and gdp will be up 0.15 percent so all of these principles are right it's just all of them individually add up to quite a small amount and you can see the effect of undoing them when you do something like brexit end market access and introduce uncertainty to the investment system and you lower gdp by some way as well so, you know, all of these are kind of good ideas in the abstract, but there isn't like a, a big lever, like, well, let's do the growth thing now. There's just lots and lots of small principle decisions to take. The, let's say that you are the, um, you know, the single advisor to the, the chancellor, or indeed the chancellor, in fact, perhaps the whole government. What would you, in this case, you, you know, you've talked about going from a planned economy to a market economy, well, we, we can't do that. We've already, you know, we are a market economy. So, what are are the UK's realistic options that, in your view, should be uh, undertaken, or, or that we should examine, or that we should look at the trade offs? But that you think are these are the things that we should do, sort of now. That you know, if you were in charge, you'd be looking at. Is the, is the advisor concerned about getting re-elected or not? Yeah. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, we are talking about politicians and politics. So, yeah, you, know, you, you can to... get re-elected by doing really stupid things. The, the quadrant that is both re-elected and good for the economy is quite a small one. I mean, if, if I wasn't very worried about re-election, I would say be much bolder with tax reform and you know, getting rid of Introducing a land tax rather than some of these other taxes, a lot of the Merleys reform would improve a lot of incentives. Um, keep uh, keep raising fuel duty, for example, and then ultimately replace it with a congestion charge, and um, and then and then sort of cut the taxes that are bad for the sort of investment. So that sort of thing works. It's just normally really hard to do and get re-elected because they're kind of unpopular in the short run. Um, so um, you'd also, some people would say you should lighten up the planning schedule. So you should make it easier for people to 
put down most infrastructure. But again, you're going to trample on a lot of toes. You'll annoy a lot of environmentalists, but that will maybe make things slightly better around the margins too. You would normally, um, you would have, um, you, you would put probably a bit more into R&D and less into um, uh, certain kind of benefits. Like you wouldn't spend money on the winter fuel allowance, which is just like a gift for pensioners because they keep voting for you. And, and you'd, you'd sort of, so those are all things that are kind of politically unpopular. What's the things that I think he could have done that are actually popular as well? Um, this is difficult for in his particular situation. I think uh, I think he needs to end the public sector strikes by paying public sector workers more. It's a false economy. They're being paid too little. I think that would have been something that would have been more popular than he realised. And, um, and that might have been relatively good for the economy. I mean, otherwise, I mean, the sort of things I suggest are normally quite politically difficult. Um, and so I'm, I know I've got a bunch of other things that I would normally have called for. But right now we're in a real hole. I'd come closer to Europe. I would say call the bluff of these nutters on the right of the Tory party, try and have a much closer deal with Europe. That would make a difference to, tra to trade and investment and therefore growth as well. Um, yeah, those, those would be a lot of the, the main ones. And Devolve is another popular one. And I think there's something to be done there. You need more local authorities having responsibility for and the benefits of growth. That, that would make a big difference to their decision-making. Another one of the very popular narratives right now is around miss missions. So I'm thinking on the Labour side, you've got the work of Mariana Masakatu, um, uh, an economist who, who sort of coined these phrases, um, and also the role of the state in innovation, those kinds of things. So on the, I've got R&D in mind in particular, but what do you think of that kind of framing? Is, is there something more to that, or is that just a nice way of, um, you know, as Labour have done it, communicating five kind of goals? I think, I mean, I've, I've chatted with Mariana about these things. It's obviously been a very influential idea and it clearly works in certain contexts, but she's uh, just the admired intellectual. It has quite high standards for what counts as a mission-worthy kind of object. You can't just say a thing you want to do and then call it a mission and that's, you've done it. You, you need to make sure it's something that kind of fits the conditions, that brings together all of the disparate parts that come together around a goal. I mean, the classic example is the moon landings which brought together all sorts of different technological challenges towards this one overarching goal not everything is like a mission from that point of view we tried to design a few for Theresa May back in the day in 2018 and we thought we had to be quite careful with just not just plunking anything down I think it's a good idea therefore to have but it can't just characterize all of government and as ever happens, people sometimes go too far with a single idea and think it's the new thing that will be the answer to everything. I think it makes sense within certain technological areas, and it makes sense when a big long-term hairy goal is needed to give you political credibility for doing a difficult thing, like the net zero commitment, which is going to underpin a lot of climate policy and people getting behind you in climate policy need the confidence you're sticking to it. But um, it's not the answer across all of policy. So I'm going to be a um, a doomster or a doomsayer for a minute and, and sort of think about what we should do if, let's say we can't get to, I mean, what are we, we're pretty much 0% growth, but let's say we can't get to the kind of level of growth that we would like to. You know, firstly, in that case, what, what should we do? And if we face that reality search, so, so I think some on the left would argue that actually let's focus on distribution. Um, I'm interested to go back to a bit about what you were saying about taxes and 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 what are the limits of that. So I'm thinking when you know down the pub, um, 
you debate a policy area, often someone will come back and say, well, we should just tax wealthy people and pay for it. And that's kind of the answer to everything. So I've got that in my mind a little bit. But what are the limits of what we can do around redistribution? I mean, that's an impossible question, if you don't mind me saying, because, um, you know, the political limits of them are determined by your ability as a politician to sell uh, to sell a policy. And that really depends on the circumstances. I mean, we were way more redistributive at certain points in the past. The tax rates were way higher in the 60s and 70s under both flavours of government, and they managed to get re-elected. If you tried those things now, you'd be just eviscerated. So it's very situational. Um, I think uh, I think we could probably make a more progressive tax system on wealth. I mean, this is where things like a land tax might make a bit of a difference. Um, so I think we could probably go a little bit further but we are a much more um, we're a much more sort of free and open society nowadays. People can move away if they don't like high taxes, and um, so I think we we might not be very far from the limits. I mean, I really don't know. I really don't. Know. It's not my area. It's not my area at all. I do think we've done a few things that have been um, unnecessarily regressive over the years. But most of the time, when you look at the OBR's analysis of the budget that's just happened, it's normally pretty progressive. They normally, just for good affordability reasons, try to give the money to the fewer number of people they can. It's quite rare to see something as regressive, for example, as them abolishing the lifetime allowance on pensions contributions that we've just seen. So um, it's uh, it's probably not been neglected as much as you might fear. We love her. An uh, impossible question on this on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah, and I realised that was that was um, rather a big one. Um, very quickly on wealth taxes, and you mentioned land value tax. Are there any other ones that would be really good? Because my um, people say wealth tax often in abstract, and I, I often want to say, well, show me the one that works somewhere else, or show me one that would be really good that we could use. Are, are there many of that kind? Well, you know, a, a, a flat property tax is what funds an awful lot of local government in America. You know, all sorts of states and lower levels have their own local property tax. And it's the sort of thing that we call a mansion tax, and, uh, like we're letting communism into the country. But it's uh, it's fairly uncontroversial. You assess the value of properties and pay a, a fixed flat fee on it for local services. So that kind of thing, which is a kind of wealth tax, it's not a perfect, um, is quite widespread. So I would say that's the most basic example. It's very hard to do it with yachts and diamonds and paintings. They're very movable. But um, I think straightforward property taxes, we haven't gone anywhere near in this country. We've just instead got this rather fossilised council tax. Yeah, just to push on that a bit. So I remember the proposals for um, a mansion tax that were mm-hmm. back and forward in the kind of coalition era. I think it was raising, I want to say 2 billion a year, but it wasn't yeah, like right. on the scale of income tax VAT really want more investment is there anything we can do to get that kind of tens of billions at least money because that's what's going to make a difference to affordability of the health it had a very high threshold it was like a half or one percent of all the properties above one million and nothing underneath that so it didn't raise money because it didn't it started at one million which is the vast majority of houses even now are worth much less than one million so if you had a flat rate all the way up from like two hundred thousand or something you would raise an awful lot more. I'm not an expert in it, but it'd be a higher figure of billions, still not absolutely masses. I'm not saying wealth taxes could fund all of the country, but land overall in this country is probably worth several trillions. And if you've got one or 2% of that, you've got 50 or 
you might have 50 or 100 billion i think but you know it's not the easiest um it's not no tax is easy to get but i think there are there are more things you could probably do land taxes are the best because you can't move the land really enjoy this i've i've done some uh, some work on land taxes and stuff like that in the uh, fairly distant past. But I just want to sort of bring this whole thing to a close by coming around to talk about politics, machinery of government, government as opposed to politics. Can you give us your reflections on, in turn, your time in government? And you said about being a, a Lib Dem in government. Can you give us your talk on your take on the Lib Dems in general. Um, and then, as we've sort of talked about maybe some of the sort of technical side, I then want to end on a sort of more political question to to tie maybe some of those together. So happy to take that in whichever order you'd like, your time in government, the politics around sort of the Lib Dems, and then we'll, we'll uh, come to a close with one final question from me. Look, I love my time in government. I didn't know what a SPAD was when I became one. And so I was lucky to sort of learn from scratch. It's a deeply social and varied experience. If you're interested in a wide variety of different things going on at once, it's fantastic. There's nothing like about the big politics all the time, the fine stuff we've been talking about, about redistribution and taxes. You're mostly dealing with office politics, which is fascinating at that level when it involves cabinet ministers. And so it's a great thing. And I'd recommend to anybody who's got that kind of energy and versatility in their mind, it's a lot of fun. And you get on well with everybody, including your opponents. Um, I find it's nothing like as abrasive as you see portrayed in popular satires, say. Um, as, as for being a Lib Dem, I was hardly much of a Lib Dem. I mean, I'm not saying I'm, I've, I've, been, I've been a party member on and off since 2007, but I wasn't a very good party political advisor when I was in the coalition. I was there more for Vince, for the business department, and for the things I thought were important, which could be dozens of them. And that would include responding to Lib Dem calls for doing things. But I wasn't one of those people who had the manifesto printed on my arm and was trying to get the whole of it pushed through. I was there to try and make Vince in particular as effective as he was because I was a big believer in him. And um, also the numbers, the vast numbers of things that the department needed the special advisor to help with. So being a Lib Dem was, you know, a part of it. There'd be a lot of sort of party support behind the scenes. You go to party conference and all of that stuff. And they provide an awful lot of moral support. But you were trying to make the system work as much as anything, as well as trying to get in on particular Dem policies. As for what it was like under the um, Theresa May, well, it didn't come into it at all. I was the only SPAD in the whole of government who wasn't forced to go into CCHQ for the general election. Um, and again, I was just trying to make the government work better. So I was a slightly unusual SPAD, and they're normally seen as these very partisan um, scheming characters who are trying to get their party or their politicians' interests in above everyone else. I was just trying to make policy work better. So I'm not sure whether you, um, I know this, Charles, but I actually worked for Lib Dems at a similar time, around about 2015. Um, uh, and so at the time, I was reasonably supportive of, you know, I didn't think the coalition was so bad, and I thought the conservative side of it were the worst bit. Um, I have since somewhat changed my views as I... Um, alluded to on austerity and now a Labour member but um from you know asking for someone or who, who's had that journey I want to get your reflection on the coalition period because I for a time thought it wasn't so bad particularly Lib Dem role in it and I now let's say reassess that um you might not want to get drawn on this but how do you feel about that 
I think the coalition, I think the Lib Dems made several tragic mistakes, including thinking that they could uh, become taken more seriously if only they showed how fierce they were about things like um, uh, austerity. They should have maybe stuck to the things that were more on brand, like DEFRA and DEC and um, D DCLG and that sort of thing. I think the coalition, compared to all the other periods of government I've seen since, was the most functional. It was one where debates were taken to a rational level and debated carefully. Um, we were dominated to a certain degree by the Conservatives and the Lib Dems took a lot of the flack for austerity in a way that was very naive in the end. And they could have played that a lot better. I agree with that. But in terms of the way government functioned, it feels like a high point rather than a low point. I do wish they'd made a few different decisions. Um, uh, and there's a lot of people will look back on the last 15 years as wasted opportunities and, and miscued. I can't sort of do a full audit of it here, I'm afraid. But um, and a lot of the time I spent there looking over at Labour going, you know, I wouldn't mind being in a coalition with you guys. I think you've got more of our values. You're trying to make the public services work more. I did think that there was some callousness in certain quarters of the coalition without naming them, where they didn't really care whether there was a cost to certain public spending cuts. They thought, well, it's not our political cost. I found some of it slightly cynical or sort of heedless. And I didn't think Labour would ever be like that. Um, so I found the 2015 general election result very traumatic on several levels. I thought it was a bad result for the country. And it turned out that it led to some pretty bad policies in the end. So, um, but I thought the coalition itself, it's a better way of running the government than having a a single party state with a 35% support in the country dominating all the fields of government. I think it's better. Could I say that? I thought that was a really, really good um, assessment, to be honest. Yeah, I think the the, the thing I look back on now and think should have done more is standing up to some of those bad, some of the particular cuts, things like bedroom tax come to mind that, that I, I think were not really acceptable. Um but yeah, it's hard to disagree that it's more functional than now. Um, some would suggest that bar is not so high, but um, I thought that was a very good assessment. I mean, I think certain things like you mentioned the bedroom text, the two-child limit seems incredibly cruel as well. I don't really care if it polls well. People think, well, why should she have more than two children? I think you're penalising children. Who does that? So I think there, there are some, some issues that I just think were just plain smelt wrong. So I'd just like to end, if I may, um, from your sort of personal experience, kind of drawing all of these things together, that there's been talk around politics of uh, a realignment, that the centre ground in British politics is left on the economy and right on culture. But I've seen recently people say, but no one has really embodied that no sort of politician, you know, people say, well, maybe New Labour were a bit, maybe that was why they were successful. Boris Johnson obviously led the Conservatives to the majority at the last election. But in my eyes, given Theresa May's industrial strategy and focus on sort of burning injustices, she could be seen as sort of left on the economy. But given yeah. her social conservatism, um, her sort of policies on immigration could be seen as right on culture was mm. it just the impossible position she found herself in over brexit was that just the sole reason she wasn't more successful 
Yeah. What's your well, reflections yeah, on your time? It's, it's not my politics. I'm slightly more to the right on her on the gov on the economy. They're not much, and slightly more to the lot more to the left of her on things like immigration. I think she was perfectly liberal on things like gay rights and so on, though. So I don't think she would have picked these nasty fights about trans rights and things like that. So I don't think it's straightforward to call her right wing on culture. She comes across as old fashioned, but I think Theresa May was quite a sensitive and thoughtful person and it comes across more through time. So um, I think she got hit by several pieces of bad luck as well. I mean, it's a difficult job being prime minister and the Brexit um, stuff was pretty unforgiving. She was trying to do a lot of the right things given the political pressure she was under. And without that, uh, she might have had a, a rollicking good time. So, yeah, I do think it was nearly all Brexit and the sort of miscued 2017 election. Without that, we might still be looking at her as prime minister. Well, with that, I think uh, I'll, we'll bring it to a close. Giles, thank you very much. It's been a really fascinating discussion. And thank you. It's been fun. You've got me to think about things I had, hadn't thought I had the energy to. <laughs> well, I guess that's what we're here for. And Martin, pleasure as always. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you, Giles. Enjoyed that. Yeah. And to our listeners, thank you very much. Of course, we're a No Man's Land podcast. Do like, share, all those, all those good things. And goodbye.